Thanks for tuning in to the Shorewood Stacks. I'm Lizzie Jelly, Virtual Engagement Librarian. And I'm Quinn Brackham, Inclusive Services Librarian. And this is the show where we talk to you about what we've been reading, watching, or listening to. And today, we are super excited to share with you some of our favorite Halloween reads. It's spooky season, folks. <laughs> yes, it is. So if you are looking for a slightly spooky, semi-spooky, or super spooky read to pick up in these next couple of weeks, we have some great suggestions for you. Okay, I will go ahead and kick us off with, you guessed it, a paranormal romance. (laughs) No one is surprised. So one of the books that I read in preparation is called Small Town Big Magic by Hazel Beck. This is one that came out last year and was kind of fairly highly anticipated, and it's got this just like beautiful cover. It's dark blue, it's full of all these colorful flowers, it just, it looks pretty. And if you're like me and you pick up pretty books, absolutely, this would be on your list. So Hazel Beck is actually the pen name for two other authors who are named Megan Crane and Nicole Helm, and they came together to start this series of paranormal romances. I also listened to this as an audiobook on Hoopla, so if you are looking for a spooky listen, this is a great one to start with. Okay, so now for what it's all about. The book follows Emerson Wilde. She's kind of our main character, and she has her life perfectly put together. Um, She runs her family's indie bookstore perfectly. It's called Confluence Books, and she is the youngest Chamber of Commerce president in town history, and she has a really great set of, like, loyal, if slightly quirky friends. Her life is perfect, loves everything, until one day... She is randomly attacked by a bunch of, like, strange shadow creatures that just should not be real, right? So she's freaking out. And one of her good friends, Jacob, shows up, pulls a sword out of nowhere, and starts fighting these shadow creatures. And she's there like, oh my god, what is going on? And is extra freaked out when she somehow channels actual magic to kill all the shadow creatures and save her friend Jacob. So... Clearly, she starts to question her entire reality. Like, what just happened? How did Jacob know where I was to come save me? Also, what are those? And through all of this, like, she's asking Jacob a lot of questions, right? And he's, like, really reticent to kind of give her any leeway because he's like, listen, I just, like, there's a lot going on here. Like, I'm so sorry. And she realizes that all of her friends have been lying to her for, like, the last decade. Oh, no. Magic is real, right? Oh, <laughs> and no. she's like, hold on. I thought you were my friends. Why didn't you tell me? And they're like, well, about that. Your memory got wiped by the coven. Ha ha. But now you remembered. So I guess we got to figure that out. And so the plot kind of follows like her working together with her friends and growing closer to Jacob as she rediscovers her magic. And they have to come together to save the town from these like this dark magic that's been summoned by like (laughs) the most like stereotypical villain you can think of. I'm not going to give away who it is because it's a little bit of a spoiler, but like It makes so much sense once it comes to light. You're like, of course, it's that slimy person. (laughs) Um, That's always satisfying. No, truly. I was like, from the get-go, I was like, ooh, gross. Every time he would show up in the story. And then when the big reveal happens, I'm like, of course it's him. It's a really delightful paranormal romance. Really gentle for the most part. Really full of, like, antics as they work together to save the town. And it's got a super fun cast of, like, quirky small-town characters. So if that's something that you really enjoy in a romance highly recommend and the second book in the series which is called big little spells just came out like two months ago so if you like it there's another one already ready to go convenient very (laughs) sounds intriguing i love a conspiracy plot line that's actually an amnesia plot line no interesting choice it's just like so funny because emerson is so like 
by the book, spreadsheet girly, like has her life put together. And for her to realize that she's missing all that knowledge, it's just like so hilarious to watch her come to terms with that and try to like make a spreadsheet to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a fun dynamic. Very much. (laughs) All right. What was one of your books, Quinn? Um, I'll start with the one that I read first, which was um, Carmilla by Sheridan Le... I should have looked up how to pronounce this. Le Fanu? Fanu. I don't know how to pronounce Irish. But um, (laughs) anyway, he was an Irish gothic horror writer. Carmilla is sort of one of the classic OG vampire novels. It's actually a novella. It's um, pretty short. But it was written about 25 years before Dracula. And it is about a vampire who is a young woman. And it is gay. It is extremely gay. (laughs) It's actually very funny because... Because of censorship, the author keeps breaking in with little asides being like, now I know this looks like lesbians, but I promise it's just a vampire feeding on a young woman. There's no sex happening. I promise. It's it's gay. So I read this on Hoopla. I picked it up because I was very into the Carmilla Webb series mm-hmm. back in the day. I don't remember what year it came out. A little while ago now. A few years ago, I a think. A few years ago. But I wanted to know the the real story behind the web series and so the plot follows our narrator laura who is a nice young girl who lives with her british father in austria in this lonely castle next to the woods the only people nearby are the peasants who work on her father's estate and the next closest thing is this abandoned village in the woods where the long dead noble family used to live it's all very spooky and atmospheric very gothic (laughs) yes deeply gothic So one day, while Laura and her father are out for a nice walk in the moonlight, admiring their spooky woods, this carriage comes roaring down the road out of the woods at, like, breakneck speed, and it hits a tree root and overturns. And inside, of course, is this beautiful young woman named Carmilla, and she bonks her head during the accident, and her mother comes out and is like, oh, oh no, I have to be going on on this secret mission, and I absolutely can't stop for a moment to like let her recover oh no what will I do and so Laura's father of course being the gentleman offers to let Carmilla stay with them until her mother can come back and pick her up (laughs) and Laura is just completely charmed by Carmilla she thinks she's incredibly beautiful and sophisticated but she's also afraid of her because Carmilla is very mysterious and moody and she talks to Laura like a lover oh no (laughs) yes (laughs) And she kisses her on the cheek when she's overcome with passion and rambles on about how they're going to die into each other. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's so a lot. dramatic. <laughs> but also, Laura is afraid of Carmilla because she had this experience when she was a child where she saw someone who looked exactly like Carmilla in her bedroom and then woke up the whole house screaming because she thought something had, like, bit her on the breast. Oh, spooky. And so meanwhile, while Laura is, like, getting closer to Carmilla and, like, it's kind of drawn in by her and charmed but also like kind of afraid of her local girls from the village begin dying of this mysterious plague because our lesbian vampire exclusively preys on beautiful young women of course she does i won't spoil the ending but it's an exciting time so thematically it's very much about like sexuality and predation but it's also kind of funny because like carmilla and her mother are kind of scammers (laughs) like oh now my turkish prisoner needs surgery and i can't give you all the details but if you just let her stay with you for a little while eventually all will be revealed 
That's like one of my favorite tropes in like older literature is like someone falls ill and then just has to stay with strangers for a while and then ends up falling in love. Mm-hmm. Like we even get to see it in stuff like Pride and Prejudice. Like yeah. It's just one of my favorite tropes because that just does not really happen nowadays. Yeah. People are way too cautious about that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it's such a such a fun trope in historical literature. Yeah. And it's fun to see it in like a queer oh, absolutely. variety because we, you know, we see it in like Pride and Prejudice with like Jane and Bingley. Um, but it's fun to see the um, evil vampire lady be the one who is stricken ill and must be cared for. Right, to, like, flip that agency and, like, the scammer is, like, that's part of it. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a really fun time. I would definitely recommend it if you enjoy Victorian gothic horror or if you're just passionate about lesbian vampires. <laughs> um, or if you watch the web series or Castlevania and you oh, want to sure. know, go back to the original source. Um, it's a pretty quick and easy read considering that it was published in the 1800s, so give it a shot. A true classic to add to your list. Mm-hmm. Okay, on the opposite end of that spectrum, I read, you guessed it, yet another romance. But this one is really cool for a couple reasons. It's called Rivals of Casper Road by Rowan Parrish. Um, I also listened to it as an audiobook on Hoopla. Wow, we're really into Hoopla this episode. That's yeah. awesome. But what's really cool about it is that this is a category romance. So category romances are generally shorter in length than like a standard romance. And they come from imprints or collections that follow a really specific theme or um, category, if you will. They're just, they're really fun. You might recognize them physically because they're like really small and they often have like that Harlequin special edition or like a special kind of cover that sets them apart from most other romances. But the reason I picked this one up is because this is a holiday romance, but it's a Halloween holiday Mm -hmm. romance and we don't get those very often because usually we're focused around the winter holidays so I love that if you do the audiobook like I did the narrator was really engaging for this one I love narrators that are just like slightly over the top that can do really distinct character voices and have a lot of energy and Greg Boudreau I think is how you pronounce his name was an excellent narrator if that's the kind of style that you like as well this novel follows Bram an actual lumberjack (laughs) <laughs> truly, oh, right? Like, you can't have Halloween without a lumberjack. And he moves to small-town Garnet Run in Wyoming after he got his heart broken by his ex and his best friend when they got together. So, poor Bram, yes. right? Our poor dear. How dare. So, he moves in to Garnet Run and onto Casper Road, which is known for its annual Halloween decorating contest because, of course, it is. Delightful. It's so fun. And his neighbor is none other than Zachary, who is a no-nonsense architect who loves horror movies And he works from home and is very kind of reclusive and very put together, buttoned up, all of that. Bram is the opposite of that. Big, like, golden retriever energy. Just, like, the nicest person. He's got a dog named Hemlock. Like, just wants to be everybody's friend. So Bram moves in and just disrupts Zachary's life because he's got a routine. He checks his mail at the same time every day. Then he goes inside, does his little architect stuff, and then, like, comes outside at the exact same time. But... Day one, Bram is out there with Hemlock and says, well, howdy, neighbor, you know, just ready to make friends. And Zachary's like really thrown off because he's like, I've got exactly two minutes till I have to put the kettle on and make my tea. And then I have three more minutes before I have to like open my computer and start drafting. So it's just like they have a really fun sunshine and grump dynamic. And Bram finds out that Zachary is the longtime reigning champion of the Halloween decorating contest on Casper Road. And I mean like seven years in a row. This guy has won. He is like no contest without a doubt the winner all the time. And Bram is like, hey, I could decorate my house for Halloween. So he breaks out his chainsaw 
and carves like a dragon out of a bunch of tree stumps um, and does this like super early like before Zachary has any of his decorations up so Zachary is so upset he's like one that dragon is super awesome two what if he wins over me that disrupts everything oh no so in a fit of like he gets really overwhelmed really upset he throws a bunch of yellow paint on the dragon and is immediately horrified with himself he's like oh my gosh what have I done that was so mean like I don't know why I did that I was out of body for a second there this is the worst um Bram being the nice person that he is interprets it as a prank and is like well great I would love a prank war so they start a prank war back and forth it's just like it's such a cute dynamic like he just Bram just thinks the best of everybody at that point and Mm -hmm. is like just kind of going back and forth with them for a while. And as the pranks escalate, they, um, well, they start to fall in love because of course they do. And I'm not really going to spoil where it goes from there, but, um, it's really cute. This is a very like Hallmark-esque style of story. If that's something that you're into, we get a really sweet, happy ending and we get a really great cast of like small town Wyoming characters who like create this really, uh, just like a really cute little small town energy where everybody is good and nice. Like there's no villain in this story. Um, everybody is just excellent. And there's a really cute part of the story where Zachary and Bram work together to create cat shelters for the stray cats of the town. Aww. I know it's so cute. Because Zachary is like, he's an architect. So he does like all the plans and then Bram Aww. helps him make it's, uh, it's adorable. That sounds adorable. Truly. Like, if you want, like, just a really wholesome Halloween read, this is it. Like, I cannot recommend anything more wholesome. 10 out of 10 from me. <laughs> that sounds delightful. I love, I love when the grumpy one is soft for the sunshine one. I know. It's, it's like, such a good trope. It just always hits. It's just so cute. I love, like, sunshine and grump is one of my favorite tropes in romance anyway. But this one, it's just, like, it's so perfect in how it manifests. And just, like, Bram is adorable and as you get to know Zachary you really warm up to him as well that sounds delightful while we're talking about cute Halloween reads I'm going to tell you a little bit about Pumpkinheads by Rainbow Rowell and Faith Erin Hicks so this is a graphic novel it follows Deja and Josiah two friends who work at a pumpkin patch together every fall And Josiah just wants to win the most valuable pumpkin patch person for like the fifth year running. Um, But tonight is their last Halloween before they graduate and go off to college. And so Deja, being a good friend, convinces him to skip out on work and go on a little adventure to see everything at the pumpkin patch together one last time. And it just, it's a really cute and cozy, like atmospheric book that just envelops you in this warm, like nostalgic hug of pumpkin patch and like halloween but like halloween when you were a little kid mm-hmm. like spoopy yeah. definitely not scary just spoopy i love that the art is really cute and cozy with lots of like warm colors there are a bunch of little like visual gags and like puns hidden in the background the nostalgic vibe is really fitting and really comes through since it's their last halloween before college then the plot is that there's sort of a romance going on as well okay There's this girl who they refer to as Fudge Shop Girl, who Josiah has been crushing on from a distance for like three years. And Deja has decided to force him to finally talk to her, even though she is like kind of into Josiah. And so there's some tension there as they have to figure out their friendship as they're moving on to college and perhaps more and try to track down 
fun shop girl and <laughs> give Josiah his like last shot at a conversation with her. Yeah, I heard about this book because I read the Simon Snow series by Rainbow Rowell a while ago and really liked it. And so I went looking for more of her books and it did not disappoint. Since it's a graphic novel, it's a pretty short, quick read. So if you want to get in the mood for Halloween, I would very much recommend it. Excellent. Honestly, I love some of the really, um, there's some really good young adults, like Halloween and like witchcraft-centered graphic novels that have mm-hmm. come out in the last few years. Like I think last year on the podcast, I talked about Mooncakes, which kind of falls in that similar vein. I love Mooncakes. It's so cute. It's so cute. And it's perfect for the season. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for some really good kind of cozy Halloween young adult graphic novels, we've got plenty of them here at the library and in the system. 10 out of 10. Okay. So my next couple of recommendations take a turn. I'm not going to lie. I wanted to challenge myself a little bit because I've been reading a lot of the same stuff over and over lately, which is good. I know what I like. It's a comforting read, but I wanted to try something a little different for the podcast. So one of the ones I picked up is actually a nonfiction. I know everybody calm down. Don't be too shocked. I did read a nonfiction book. Like, yes. <laughs> not truly. Like, <laughs> um, but it's called Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries by Greg Melville. Ooh. And this one, it came out last year, and I was really excited about it when we got it. But I just didn't get a chance to read it until now, when I was like, you know what, Lizard? It's time. And it's really cool. So I... I really am interested in death culture and like memorial practices and like mortuary science, all of that. I always joke that if I wasn't a librarian, I would have been a mortician because um, it's all the same things that I like, just in a very, very different way. <laughs> so I was really excited to pick this one up. And it's relatively short as well for a nonfiction, so it's not going to slog you down. And it was really engaging. It's very narrative in how it's written, and it also has pictures in it. I know, I right? Know. <laughs> But it's a really fascinating and critical look at cemetery history and culture, specifically through an American lens. And it includes a lot of discussion about, like, how American, like, death culture and cemetery culture has determined, like, which bodies value, which bodies don't, and um, who gets prioritized in death and who gets, like, really not and, like, really forgotten. And all these, like, practices and how they come together to, like, support different aspects of, like, American culture really fascinating how the author ties this all together in these very like different chapters on each chapter he kind of takes us on a journey through a different cemetery and he writes in a style where you feel like you're walking right next to him as he's just like you know walking through um some of the oldest cemeteries in the country or he even walks through like the disney cemetery which is really interesting um and it's yeah it was really cool for a nonfiction. He includes some really great discussion as well as how like race and class particularly impacted the development of cemeteries. And one of my favorite chapters, he actually talks about how military cemeteries were kind of created and the aesthetics were put together to promote like a lot of nationalism and to like support war efforts. Oh. Right? Like the dots are all there, but I wasn't connecting them until mm-hmm. I was reading it from his perspective. It was really cool. Interesting. Yeah, right? Like I don't know. I think cemeteries are really fascinating, and I love a good cemetery tour, so it was really cool to, like, vicariously do cemetery tours through this book. And that's something that he talks about. He talks about cemetery tourism as Mm -hmm. well, and how cemeteries have kind of monetized themselves in that way, because he also talks about how cemeteries are falling out of fashion, and younger people are less interested in getting buried in those kind of traditional ways that cemeteries have supported and how a lot more focus anymore is less on those physical memorials and more on these, like, 
I think he calls it digital immortality. And he like he refers to Facebook as like one of the biggest cemeteries because of all the memorial profiles. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought about that until I was reading this book and engaging with it. And I was like, wow, it's so fascinating to think about how those practices of mourning have shifted with the digital age. So if you also find that stuff really interesting and there's... <laughs> There's a chapter where he like talks about visiting a cemetery and his opening line is about how the cemetery was giving away free hot dogs on Earth Day. (laughs) And it's just like the way he tells the story is like it's so funny and it's so engaging. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not as um, into such ghoulish stuff as I am, there's a lot of humor in the way he tells it. And it's not it doesn't come across as morbid. It comes across as very conversational and very informative. And I learned a lot about cemeteries and just about American history as well and how cemeteries reflect that. So I highly recommend this one if you want to do some cemetery tourism of your own without leaving your couch. Interesting. (laughs) I know it's super weird compared to the other stuff that I usually pick, but I don't know. It was really fun to push myself out of my box and read this one. I I really liked it. Yeah, interesting what you said about Facebook being a... A sort of cemetery. That's not something I thought about before. Me either. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. And I had to like go through and reread that section. Because I was like, whoa, that's true. Because you can like have your profile set to memorialize you after you die. And it's just like an interesting way that that's a very common way that we mourn now. Where it's like, you know, back in 200 years ago, you'd visit the physical marker in the cemetery. Now you'd visit their online profile. Which is just, it's so fascinating. Really fascinating stuff. Sounds like an interesting shift in perspective. Truly. So if you want to, I don't know, open your horizons a little bit about cemeteries, highly recommend Over My Dead Body. Also, what a great title. A great title. (laughs) All right. I think you had one more too, right? I do. So I'm going to take us right back into the realm of paranormal romance. (laughs) With Hunger Pangs, True Love Bites by Joy DeMora. Sometimes you read a book and you're like, oh, the author climbed into my brain and like wrote this just for me. Um, That's how I felt about this book. So this is a slow burn polyamorous bisexual romance about a charming disabled werewolf, a vampire who's also a mad scientist and a super powerful witch. It sort of straddles the line between romantic fantasy and paranormal romance with like a lot of world building and this sort of steampunk setting that takes place in the imaginary but Victorian-inspired Neverondian Empire. It's very, like, Pratchett-esque if mm. the Discworld series included romance novels. I saw, <laughs> I saw it advertised as, quote, the queer goth love child of Terry Pratchett and Jane Austen, unquote. <laughs> and it certainly met that description. The plot goes that Nathan, the second son of the Wolf Lord, is sent home from the war after he's been shot by a silver-tipped bullet and survives with complications. He's lost hearing in one ear, and his wound just, like, has never healed right. Mm. So he decides to take up a posting as the captain of the guard at Erie, which is an island full of vampires. So the island is ruled by the Count and his son, the Viscount, Vlad, who just so happens to be a closet reformist and a lover of magical botany and a student of necromancy and, like, low-key an expert on supernatural (laughs) medicine. So Vlad is able to notice Nathan's, like, lingering uh, effects from the silver bullet that almost killed him and, like, help him heal. The two gradually grow closer, sort of get together over the Hallow's Eve ball. Um, But they have to keep their relationship a secret because neither of their families would approve of them, you know, banging someone from the rival tribe, so to speak. So meanwhile, as all this is happening, 
um, the Lady Ursula is traveling the world looking for these magical ancestral trees. Um, and the ancestral trees have been dying and the sacred groves have been dying. And that is bad news for the world. And so she's trying to like figure out what's going on and like find a solution to this like magical blight that's happening. And so she enlists Nathan and Vlad to help her try to save the world. It's a hefty book. It's almost 500 pages. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's a bit of a slow burn, but it's definitely never a slog. It does spend a lot of time setting up the world and relationships. It's actually book one of what is going to be a series, but it definitely is satisfying to read on its own, um, though there's a lot of like plot threads that continue that I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for book two to come out. <laughs> what I liked about it um, most were the characters. I can't even decide who is my favorite because like we were talking earlier about the like grumpy one and the sunshine one trope. Nathan is absolutely the golden retriever werewolf boyfriend, and he's just like so kind and charming and wry and competent. And then Vlad is my poor little meow meow, like black cat boyfriend. <laughs> um, he's just like this delightful Byronic hero who's like snarky and rakish and angsty. And he's also like protective of his little sister, and he wants a good life for his people. He's very like if Mr. Darcy was like a disaster bisexual vampire. It's delightful. And then Ursula is just wild and chaotic and fey, and we love that for her. I just I have such a weakness for insane, scary, powerful woman characters. And then also for the trope of, like, powerful immortals who are just, like, tired and sad um, after lifetimes of, like, losing all their friends who still keep choosing to be kind. Like, Ursula has this very Doctor Who kind of appeal. The relationships, like, the vibe is very gentle. And they do things like talk about their feelings and, like, talk about consent you get the feeling that the main trio actually like each other and are friends and like no one is a sexy lampshade put there to look pretty um there's lots of delicious political tensions and a botanical mystery <laughs> and puns so the whole thing is just like written with such like a palpable love for the readers and the characters and the story and it just makes it really enjoyable to read it's from a small indie publisher i heard about it because the author is active on social media as a disability advocate we have it available as an ebook on Libby and as an audiobook on Hoopla. So, oh, nice. whichever your preferred format is, it's there for you. There's actually two versions of the book. It was published with like a high heat edition and a low heat edition. Um, so, you can read either one depending on your preferred level of spiciness. It's the same story, but the low heat version, um, all the sex scenes either fade to black or are substituted with like fluff scenes instead. Um, we have access to both versions, so. Cool. I do love when, like, a book is available in a bunch of different formats. You can mm -hmm. kind of choose, like, based on the type of book, which one works better for you. Because yeah. I'm definitely, like, I don't know. I love nonfiction audiobooks a lot because it feels like a podcast. Whereas, like, reading a physical nonfiction book is really tough for me personally. So that's mm -hmm. kind of cool that you get a choice of a different format that works yeah. for you. Yeah, the author has, like, made an effort since they're, you know, a small little indie yeah. organization to make it available in as many formats as possible so that different folks can have access to it. And I think that's great. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. We love access to reading, yeah. <laughs> however that looks for you. Speaking of access to reading, I have one last book to talk about. And listen, this was a challenge for me because all of our listeners know I am a big baby when it comes to anything that's actually scary. Uh -huh. And I picked up something that's actually scary. But I really, really wanted to read this book when I saw it was coming out. 
It's called Never Whistle at Night, and it's an indigenous dark fiction anthology. So a bunch of different indigenous authors got together and wrote scary short stories, basically. And I thought that that would help because I'm like, okay, if it's small, it can't be scary, right? Oh, no, I was so wrong. So wrong. Do not read this before bed. (laughs) I made that mistake last night, and I am paying for it today. However, it was worth it. They're so good. So this whole thing is a collection of a bunch of sinister short stories. You'll recognize several of the authors because there's um, contributors like Tommy Orange, Rebecca Roanhorse, and the introduction is by Stephen Graham Jones, whose works that we've talked about in past seasons on the podcast. And a big theme of this collection is being unsettled in all definitions of that word. Because when we're coming from an indigenous perspective, we get a lot of discussion about land and what it means to be interpreted Mm -hmm. through a white lens and how... This is something that Stephen Graham Jones really sets up in his introduction, but like how how horror means different things depending on whose eyes you're looking through. And this like really comes through in stories that revel in that blur between reality and unreality because we're describing some like stories and creatures from indigenous folklore and they translate very differently depending on who's reading it, who's telling it, and what character is experiencing it. So it's just really unsettling is the best word I can think of like I just felt uncomfortable in my own skin as I'm reading this book but also really thinking deeply about what about these stories is scary and to whom and why it's just like if you love to revel in that gray area this is a really cool read two of my favorite stories from this that I'll talk about one of them is from Rebecca Roanhorse and it's called White Hills Um, The second one that I really loved is by Royce K. Youngwolf, and it's called Human Eaters, which Mm -hmm. I know I should have known from the title that that one was going to be scary, but I decided to push myself and try it anyway. But White Hills was really fascinating to me. Um, It follows Marissa, who is Native and white passing as she navigates like her white husband discovering her Native heritage for the first time. And this is after they're married and she's pregnant and hasn't told him yet. She makes an offhand comment about football mascots, and that's how he finds out, like, in front of a bunch of, like, dude bros at the country club, and it's, like, a whole thing. Her mother-in-law discovers she's pregnant, and it gets really sinister from there. So we get some real big aspects of, like, eugenics, pregnancy loss, and, like, from a Native perspective, but also, like, within, like, this, like, white gated community for the most part, and it's just, like, so unsettling Mm -hmm. so spooky and big content warning for like discussion of pregnancy loss and eugenics in the story but wow this one like it stuck with me and like i'm still thinking about it and the visuals are just so striking and like multi-layered and i'm not going to tell you how it ends because the ending really threw me off (laughs) like i did not see that coming um but it makes a lot of sense so i will leave you with that if you want to pick that one up and then i will talk about human eaters which was like I thought that, again, I was like, oh, if it's small, it can't be scary. This is a 10-page story. How bad could it be? Oh, my gosh. I did not sleep. Human Eaters, it's told from the perspective of an older Native person as they're trying to, like, pass on knowledge about, quote, them to two younger Native teens as they're, like, cooking dinner together around a campfire in the woods. And so the elder that's telling the story kind of takes it as their responsibility to pass on knowledge of the past, knowledge of their heritage to the younger generation. And so they keep talking about the horror of, like, them who live unseen around us, like, at the edges of our vision, and what it means for, like, Indigenous and Native peoples today to have lost 
the ability to see them and the ability to engage with them and that kind of stuff. And it's really like fascinating. The whole story is told through the perspective of the older person. So you're watching like these like 12 and 13 year olds reactions to the story and you can see them trying really hard not to be scared um, as the older person is telling the story and being like, they're not scary. They know you don't worry. Like they're not going to hurt you. Like they only hurt people who like break their vows or who like disavow their heritage. And like, as they're telling this story, we're seeing it through their eyes and they keep describing like, Oh, I see these long fingers on the trees. And like, Oh, they start telling a story of like, kids that went missing back in the day because they broke their vow and like oh it's just like it's so spooky so spooky very unsettling this one was really interesting because it talks about how that loss of sight or the loss of ability to engage with them um was part of like having their culture forcibly taken from them in residential schools so it's like we get this like dose of history tied into like folklore and then we're like living it in the moment as they're telling it and i was like whoa there's a lot in these 10 pages, actually. So smaller is not less scary in this book. However, this is a really great and diverse collection of different stories from like Native peoples all over the globe. Like it's predominantly North America, but there are also stories from other cultures. So if you are looking for some really great indigenous fiction to read for Native American Heritage Month next month, highly recommend this one. But prepare to be scared and unsettled, if you will. I love that. I love the double meaning of unsettled. Truly, like, it, this whole anthology is just brilliant with that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Like, it causes you to, like, see it one way, and then you have to see it a different way as you're reading it mm-hmm. through all of these stories. And it's just fascinating and complex and truly a delight to read. Yeah, it sounds really interesting and, like, high concept. I Absolutely. Love, one thing I love that horror can do is really put into sharp relief the anxieties of a certain people or culture and really show those off in a way that is like unsettling for the way that it you know pulls those sort of subconscious things to the forefront and that sounds sounds like what this book is doing absolutely and it's very um visual in that Mm -hmm. way too so like we're seeing they talk a lot about sight and like Stephen Graham Jones sets that up in his um introduction as well as like how perception shifts depending on like which character you're relating to and which character is like viewing the story versus telling the story Mm -hmm. and it's just gosh it's so cool (laughs) and I say that as someone who doesn't generally read scary texts like this is honestly so good I recommend it even if you're a big baby about scary stuff like I am it's worth a read just for how clever and cool and insightful it is all right well We've given y'all a lot to think about in terms of some Halloween reads and a bunch of different angles. As always, if you have any questions for us, feel free to reach out. Um, Until then, stay safe and be well. As always, if you have any questions or comments for your hosts, you can email us at shorewood at mcfls.org. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening and be well. Shorewood Stacks is produced by Lizzie Jelly and Quinn Brackup for the Shorewood Public Library. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. The song is called Ice Flow and can be found on incompetech.com.